Well, I encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn, uh, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We've been in this series, the book of Nehemiah now, uh, not quite two months, coming up soon, two months. Uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, we will be reading, studying the first 13 verses. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. As you turn there in your Bibles, I do encourage you, as always, to read along with me in your Bibles as we read the Word of God and leave your Bibles open as I preach the Word of God so that you can test what you hear against this inerrant and infallible standard. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are, for, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for the other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, I said to them, as we, I'm sorry, I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of God this morning for the people of God. Now for the last several weeks... We've been seeing how Nehemiah and the rebuilders of the wall of Jerusalem have been facing uh, threats from outside the city. We have pagan nations who were led by men who hated the Jews, who hated the covenant people of God, uh, and they have risen up and they have been trying to thwart the kingdom work that has been happening under Nehemiah's leadership and guidance. We've also seen other Jews who live outside of Jerusalem, uh, trying to discourage the workers, their fellow brothers and sisters, 
from completing this rebuilding process. So we've seen how the Israelites have had to wisely restructure their workforce so as to guard the holy, holy city against these threats and to help maintain good morale amongst the workers. We kind of looked at that the last two weeks. We've seen how under Nehemiah's leadership, the people have been able to maintain their resolve, their commitment, and they've continued to labor hard for the kingdom of God. Now what happens in our text this morning is, it seems that these sort of external threats, this external ruckus, has calmed down a little bit, at least for now. But now that it has calmed down, we begin to see issues from inside of Jerusalem, inside the covenant people of God, uh, come to the surface. And in our text today, it becomes quite obvious that there exists in and amongst the Jews deep division. The gravity of the situation is that this division amongst the Jews, it could and it would tear the covenant people apart unless something is done to quickly restore unity amongst the people. Now, if you have been coming to Wednesday night Bible study, you will know that this ties in very nicely with our study on the book of 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth, as many of you know, had a lot of issues. It was an arrogant, braggadocious, proud church that tolerated sexual immorality. They did not practice church discipline and excommunication even when they uh, were supposed to. They had issues with abuses of spiritual gifts. There were divisions and issues around the administration of the Lord's Supper. But all of those things that were happening in the book of Corinth flowed out of an overarching issue. Those issues that Paul covers in the book of 1 Corinthians, as we have been hearing on Wednesday night, they flow out of the main issue of division in the church. The church in Corinth was not united in Jesus Christ. And so the main theme of 1 Corinthians is Paul calling on the church to remember Christ crucified. Remember that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are not only reconciled to the thrice holy God, but also reconciled to one another, called to be one body in our Lord Jesus. Disunity, as we can clearly learn in 1 Corinthians, is, the, is first and foremost an affront to the gospel message itself. And secondly, disunity in the church is an extremely dangerous toxin which can, it has, and it will destroy a local church congregation. It was true in Corinth, and it was true for Nehemiah and the Israelites in our passage today. The Jews are not unified as one covenant people. The fact of the matter is, that was a far greater threat to the rebuilding efforts of the holy city than Sanballat and Tobiah and the Ammonites and the Arabs and the Ashdodites. Disunity was the real threat facing the Jews. And so we are going to look at this text today. And we'll look at it in three sections to see how it is that Nehemiah and the Israelites deal with this internal issue 
which threatens to derail the rebuilding work. The first of our three sections today is found in verses 1 through 5. In this section, we hear the outcry of the people and we learn what the root cause of this disunity was. In these verses, we find three separate groups of people coming to Nehemiah with serious complaints. The first group is found in verse 2. There were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are so many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. These people, we understand, were hungry. So much time, so much effort, so much self-sacrifice, material resources were being channeled to the rebuilding efforts. And we get the sense that some people, particularly the poorer people, weren't able to put food on their tables anymore. They were giving fully of themselves while their basic human needs were not being met. They were laboring hard while starving. The second group of people found in verse 3 were landowners who had to mortgage their property so as to get grain for food. Now, we also learn in verse 3 that there was a famine in the land during this time. And so this famine is exasperating the food situation that these poor laborers were facing. Now, this second group may have been a little better off than the first group because at least they did have property to mortgage off so as to buy grain. But their situation was still dire because they were now in debt. And in order order for them to get out of debt, they must have a good harvest. Given the fact that they were in a famine, having a good harvest so as to pay off their debt and also have food seemed implausible. And really, the second group that we read about here, they're, very, they're in a very similar situation as the third group that we read about in first, verse 4. Verse 4, there's a group of people who had to borrow money, so they are in debt, just like the second group of people. But they had to borrow money so as to pay taxes to King Artaxerxes of Persia. They had to pay taxes on their fields and their vineyards. In other words, these are property taxes. And these property taxes were, as I believe they always are, they were placing an unbearable burden upon those who are able to least bear that financial burden. Just like with the second group, Because of the current famine, it seemed very unlikely that after the upcoming harvest season, this third group would be in a better condition to pay off their debt. And so we we today, we all, many people, not all, but many people have debt. We don't really think of debt as a looming problem in modern society. But what happened in Jewish society, according to the law of Moses, when you were in debt and could not pay. What happened was slavery. Slavery is how the Lord ordained for a member of the nation of Israel who was in debt, who could not financially pay, slavery was how they could pay their debt. And you see that in verse 5. Indeed, already many of the children of this third group of people did have to go into slavery to the people who held that debt. Now we should understand, while the law did demand slavery to pay debts that you could not financially pay, 
The law also had statutes which protected slaves and the poor when they found themselves in economic hardships. You could not, for example, serve as a slave for more than six years. After six years, the debt was to be considered paid off, the slave was to be set free. Leviticus chapter 25 also said that any person who had to mortgage their land because of economic issues had to have the opportunity to purchase back that land at a reasonable price. Uh, Their land could also be purchased back for them by a kinsman redeemer. And then also in the law of Moses, you had every 50 years what is known as the year of Jubilee where mortgaged land would automatically revert back to the original landowner's families. And so we need to understand what's being done here by the nobles, by the upper class, by the city officials of Jerusalem. What's being done is really an abuse of the law of Moses, and it lacks the grace, it lacks the mercy that the Lord himself has built into the law to protect the poor, to protect the slave, to protect the one who has had to go into debt to feed their families. And so when we put it all together, we see a class of people who were starving, who were in massive debt, and who were forced into slavery. And the most tragic thing about their situation is the reality that it was other Jews who were doing this, doing this to them. Look at verse 1. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This starvation, this debt, this slavery, it was not being inflicted upon the poor citizens of Jerusalem by pagan nations. That in and of itself would have been bad enough. But no, this is far worse. These terrible conditions, they were being inflicted upon these people by other Jews, others who belonged to the covenant people of God, people who were supposed to be their brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking. The cause of division in the covenant people of God, beloved, was abuses inflicted upon one group of Jews by another group of Jews. One group was on the brink of death, financial ruin, perpetual slavery, the other group was thriving. And this leads us into the second section of our text this morning, Nehemiah's response, verses 6 through 11. This outcry rises up to Nehemiah. And how does Nehemiah respond? First, he responds in anger. A righteous anger, I believe. An anger which even our Lord, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, showed when he saw the abuses of the upper pharisaical class in the temple in his earthly ministry. We need to understand, beloved, there are times when anger is the appropriate response. When we see things which we know arouse the righteous anger of our God, beloved, we too, like Nehemiah, like Jesus himself, should respond in holy anger. There's a place for righteous indignation, you see. And I think we've forgotten that today. We're far too concerned with being nice. And I think the reason for that is because we've equated niceness with being loving. 
But being nice and being loving, they are not the same thing. Being nice, being charitable, it has its place. And at times, being nice and charitable and gentle is exactly what love demands. But at other times, the least loving thing we could do is to respond with niceness. There are times when anger is the loving response because righteous anger is a zeal. It is a jealousy for the holiness of God. And it is God, by the way, who is to be our first love. And righteous anger does lead to reproof. And reproof, as we will see in just a moment, reproof will, if the Lord is willing, lead to repentance. And calling people to repent is one of the most loving things that we could ever do. And so Nehemiah's angry response is the right response here. And then we see him go from this angry response to him taking counsel with himself. Now that is actually a hard phrase to translate and understand. And some people take real issue with Nehemiah taking counsel with himself. Shouldn't he, many will say, take counsel with God? Turn to the Lord as he has done so many times already throughout this book in prayer seeking godly wisdom. Or at the very least, shouldn't Nehemiah take counsel with other leaders in Jerusalem? Now, I understand the reservation here. Nehemiah is not perfect. He is not God. And there's a profound danger in taking counsel with oneself when you yourself are not God. We tend to believe we are just a little more wise than what we really are. There is always, I believe, a greater wisdom to be found in taking counsel with other godly people. But I might ask, just who should Nehemiah take counsel with in this passage? It's clear from what he goes on to say that the very people he would normally take counsel with, particularly the officials of the city, were part of the guilty party. So it seems that taking counsel with others may not have been a very good option for him in this moment. And as for taking counsel in prayer with God, I don't think we need to believe he didn't do that. I don't necessarily believe that when he takes counsel with himself, it excludes turning to the Lord in prayer. As I said, that phrase, I took counsel with myself, is a bit of a difficult passage to translate and understand. But I think our best understanding of the phrase simply means that Nehemiah took time to carefully consider the charges that were brought before him while examining within his own heart and mind how he should respond. And such counsel, as I said, I don't believe excludes prayer. In fact, I believe we can probably assume prayer was very much part of Nehemiah taking this counsel. And so Nehemiah has a response of righteous anger. He hears He considers the charges, and then he takes action. He responds in verse 7 by bringing all the people together in a great assembly and in a legal fashion, acting as a persecuting lawyer, he brings charges against the nobles and the officials in the city. Now in these charges that he brings, 
we learn even more about what this ruling class of citizens were doing to the poor in Jerusalem. First, we see they were charging interest when these poorer Jews came to mortgage their land and borrow money and, and mortgaged their land and borrowed money. Now we have to know the charging of interest of usury is expressly forbidden in the law of Moses when Israelites lent money to other Israelites. Now we read in the book of Deuteronomy, if a Jew made a loan to somebody outside the nation of Israel, they were allowed to charge interest. But when they were lending to another Jew, it was completely, absolutely, utterly forbidden to charge interest on a loan. And yet these nobles, these officials were charging, we gather from this text, an exuberant amount of interest. Secondly, we see that some of these nobles and officials were making money off of slave trading. It took me a while to understand what exactly Nehemiah is talking about in verse 8. But here's what I think uh, that is happening. It seems that he and other city officials were using public funds to go to pagan slave markets and any Jews who were part of the slave trade, they were going, taking, as I said, public funds from the treasury of the city of Jerusalem and they were purchasing back Jews who were enslaved by pagans. Some of the Jewish nobles were on to this. And they were actually beginning to make money off of the slave trade because what would happen is when another Jew would come to them and borrow money and not be able to pay the debt and so their children had to go into slavery to work off the debt, what these people would do is they would take that Jewish slave, sell them to pagan slave traders for a profit only to have that Jewish slave bought back by the public funds of the city of Jerusalem. And so it became a lucrative business for some of these people to sell Jewish slaves to these pagan nations. And obviously it is quite an abominable thing to sell your own kinsmen to slavery to pagans. So these are the charges Nehemiah levies against the nobles and the officials. And you notice their response. They don't have one. They respond in silence. Now I get the sense that this response of silence was very different from when Jesus would confront the religious leaders of Israel in his day. Remember when he would confront the Pharisees or the scribes and he would rebuke them. How, how many times did we hear in our study in the Gospel of Luke that they could say nothing or that they remained silent. Now in Luke's gospel, whenever Jesus silenced his opponents, uh, we get the sense that that silence did not lead to repentance, but rather that silence produced in those people a hardness of heart. They were only more resolved to find a way to arrest and put Jesus to death. But here, as we see in the third section of our text today, verses 12 and 13, the response of silence that the accused give, I think this silence is very different because this is a silence which produces true, genuine repentance. Now, Before we look at their repentance, it is important to note 
And Nehemiah doesn't just levy charges against these Jews. He calls them to specific actions. He says first, verse 9, that their actions are not good. That phrase is not nearly strong enough. The language in the Hebrew is quite a bit stronger. It, it, it really is saying their actions were unrighteous. In other words, their actions were unworthy of the God that they served. And they were worthy of condemnation. Nehemiah says you should not be walking in unrighteousness. No, instead you need to walk in the fear of the Lord. And in this case, he gives a specific reason why they should walk in the fear of the Lord. It is to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Now that's an interesting reason Nehemiah gives. There are many reasons to walk in the fear of the Lord. First, it glorifies the Lord. Secondly, it leads to our salvation. It is the beginning of godly wisdom. But Nehemiah says, we should walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. This means, beloved, that the pagans around them, these pagan nations that we've been hearing about, they are seeing exactly what is going on in Jerusalem with this internal issue, these great injustices, and they are mocking Israel for it. They're probably saying things like, oh, you know, they claim to be the covenant people of this one true and living God. They claim to be the people of Yahweh, the Lord. And yet look at how their nobles and their officials take advantage of the poor. They're no different than us. There's nothing special about them. And they are liars and their God is false. That's probably what was happening. And this is very much a solid reminder to us, beloved, that when there are deep divisions within the household of God, deep divisions amongst a local church body, we do indeed compromise our witness and our testimony to the eyes of a watching world. Yes, the world is still going to mock and taunt the church, just as those nations mocked and taunted Jerusalem in previous chapters of Nehemiah. But when the world mocks us, let them do so because of our gospel witness, not because of divisions and schisms within the church. Then Nehemiah in verse 10 says that he and his brothers and his servants were lending money and grain to the poor, and he says, let us abandon the exacting of interest. This, that's an interesting statement in verse 10, and some people think this means that Nehemiah himself was practicing money lending while charging interest. Is that what he was doing? Well, that's a debatable topic. Some people think Nehemiah was doing this, and therefore, in verse 10, he's confessing his sin and all of this great injustice. Perhaps that's true. It is a reminder that even the most godly of leaders is still a sinner in need of repentance and grace. Most think Nehemiah was not lending interest. Instead, he's using himself as a positive example and saying to the others, look, I've been lending without charging interest. You need, if you're going to lend, you need to do that. Just stop this usury practice, this lending with interest. If you're going to lend, do as I do, interest-free. But whether Nehemiah was guilty or was not guilty of lending money with interest, the greatest call to action comes in verse 11. 
Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. What is Nehemiah doing there? He's doing exactly what Pastor Derek Thomas notes in his commentary on this chapter. Nehemiah is proposing a year of jubilee. Here and now, even though it was not the appointed time, Nehemiah is invoking the spirit of Leviticus 25, saying, let's just return it all to them. For God's sake, quite literally, for God's sake, let's take care of our brothers and sisters going forward. Restore to them everything and move forward as one body. And as I said, the people of God, beloved, in our passage today, verses 12 and 13, they respond with genuine repentance. Verse 12, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Now notice, to make sure the people did as they promised, Nehemiah Nehemiah basically seals a covenant with them. He calls the priests in. He makes the people swear before the priests that they would do as Nehemiah called them to do. And then in verse 13, he even performs a prophetic act of shaking out the fold of his garment and saying, may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. And all the assembly responded by saying, Amen. In other words, yes. Let it be done to us if we do not do as we have promised. It's a response of true, complete repentance. The response of the nobles and of the officials was not just, oh yeah, sorry, we feel, you know, we feel kind of bad about that. It was, yes, we have sinned, we repent, we will turn away from our wickedness, and we will make restitution. We will restore what we unrighteously gained. Beloved, I want you to see the result of that repentance. Look at the middle portion of verse 13. All the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. They worshiped together, beloved. They they all praised the Lord. To me, that's one of the most remarkable things that happens in this text. Unity was restored within the body. And that means that not only did those who sinned respond correctly by repenting, But it also means that those who were sinned against responded correctly by forgiving. And it had to be true forgiveness, beloved, because otherwise, how could the entire assembly then worship together? Now listen, this issue of division in the body of believers, as I said in the beginning of this sermon, is a more severe threat to the church, to the covenant people of God, than any external threat. And it's a threat that exists truly in every single congregation. The reality is, what causes our internal divisions today, the threats that can derail a church from working on building up the new Jerusalem, many times those issues are far more trivial than what was happening in Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day. I mean, how many churches are keeping part of their congregation starving, homeless, or selling each other's children into slavery. When I hear of a church splitting, someone just told me fairly recently about a local church that split. They were in, and it split because they couldn't agree over the 
the carpet color. Nothing remotely close to what was happening in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 5 is happening in most congregations. Now, I do not mean to say that there aren't severe, serious sins committed against fellow church members in some churches. There are. There are cases of abuse from leadership or cases of congregations abusing leaders or one member of the congregation committing a grievous sin against another member of the congregation and then the church leaders finding out and covering it up and things like that. Those things do happen. And I don't want to discredit that. And I don't want to downplay that. But in most churches, what divides a congregation is far more trivial than what we have seen in our text this morning. And if that is the case, then why is church unity such an issue? Why do churches split and divide so easily over trivial matters? The answer is simple. There is both a resistance to true repentance, and even more so, I think, a greater resistance to true forgiveness. We are too arrogant, beloved. We are too proud. We are too easily bruised. Our feelings get too easily hurt. And we are too convinced that any and all offenses committed against us are infinitely grievous offenses. We cannot be that way. As I said before, this issue of unity in the body, unity in the church, it is a gospel issue. Let me prove that it's a gospel issue by asking you this. Have you repented of your sins? Do you continue to repent of your sins before the thrice holy God? And are you looking to Jesus Christ by faith alone? If you have, here's the reality of your status before God. Through Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, you have been forgiven of all your sins. And you have been restored to communion with the eternally holy, true, and living God. Now think about that. Think about what that means. Because I promise you, your sin, even your quote-unquote smallest sin, is a far greater offense against God than anything another person in the church will ever do to you. And yet, in Christ, you are forgiven And you are brought back into communion with the Holy God. And yet you cannot swallow your pride, repent, and or forgive the person in the pew next to you. We better find a way to do this, beloved. Otherwise, our church will be torn apart. There can be no spiritual restoration, no spiritual renewal amongst us if we do not repent and if we do not forgive one another. And so as we close this morning, I simply, like Nehemiah, I want to leave you with a charge. A charge to remember the gospel. Remember who you are as the covenant people of God. Remember who you are as the blood-bought people of God. Remember what it cost Jesus to earn your forgiveness. Remember, repent, forgive, and come together as one assembly, as one body in Christ to do as the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 5 did. 
come together to praise the Lord in the spirit of true Christian unity.